Okay, so thanks to everybody for joining um, Infrared Chat. I am very excited to have Stephen Sanofsky and Bob Muglia join. So it's interesting as we were putting this together, which is originally the idea was to talk about you know, what it means to be a tech and product leader, um, especially as you, you know, scale to very large orgs, right? Stephen ran a large part of Microsoft. Bob has, you know, been, you know, CEO of large public companies, also, you know, ran some very significant projects within Microsoft. But part of this is like kind of doing research and chatting with them is just how interesting the, the history of um, Microsoft is. And, and, and then, you know, there's kind of questions on how actually relevant it is to, um, uh, to, to business today because it's had so many different guises. And so we're going to talk about that. Um, we're going to talk about leadership in general. Um, and then, you know, as you know, folks have questions, you know, we'll bring you up. But we're going to spend maybe 10 minutes getting to know Stephen Bob before we do that. And so let's just go ahead and start with backgrounds for those that don't know. And by the way, just so everybody knows, I'm pickled because these are two of my favorite people and they're two people I've looked up to for 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. And so I'm very happy to be up here. So definitely want to make us feel as old as possible as we get started, but that's okay. <laughs> You're not that much older than me. I know. That's why I'm like, I don't know what's going on here. Old. We're all pretty old, actually. Exactly. So, so maybe we'll start with Steve. Do you, do you mind giving like a little bit of a long form of, of your background? So everybody kind of knows the, the crooked path you carved to get here. Did you say me first? Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah. yeah. Oh, sure. Um, well, my the very quick version of the long version is I went to college and studied computer science and chemistry and then went to graduate school and was going to do a doctorate in computer science and decided that computer science, I'm just saying this only for your benefit, but that computer science research was like a poor poor person's version of computer science and industry. So I quit my PhD and went and got a job at, quote, a software company in the Northwest. And <laughs> well, did, didn't, you do, didn't you do chemistry? I did chemistry as an undergrad, chemistry and computer science at the same time. And it was interesting because there was no chemists used computers. I was going to um, say, like, how, how did that happen? <laughs> uh, I, I, you know, I was going to go to medical school is basically uh, if you ask my mom. And, and so unlike like most short Jewish people who don't end up going into the NBA, I also didn't end up going to medical school. Um, and uh, I actually was awful at uh, chemistry, like seriously bad. But because I did computers, I was like the only person in the department who did computers. And so I did my lab reports. I wrote up on um, a Xerox star and laser printed them, which was like this unheard of thing. I mean, like literally it was unheard of thing because there were only like 500 stars and I would show up with my finished report and the professor who's on Twitter would write like fantastic looking report, content, complete crap. <laughs> and I, don't I, believe, I, mean, because, I don't believe that, Steve. No, they would, they would, these things I would look, your contact, they, uh, they would look, not my chemistry content, but, but they would look like these camera ready for, you know, nature journal articles with just utter garbage gibberish in them. But anyway, I, I studied, I was in databases and programming languages and then ended up uh, going to work at Microsoft. And, and I started off in development tools as a, as a software design engineer or, or engineer, and then did a whole bunch of different stuff, including working in office for a long time, and then worked on windows for a long time for about, uh, two years in there. I worked for Bob, um, in, 
the late 19, the late, the tail end of the 1990s. In a manner and, of speaking, he worked for me, actually, the way, the way I would put it. I, I, right. He I reported to me. He reported to me, but that's about all I could say. So, <laughs> Bob, Bob has some baggage that he's going to unload no, in the no, middle no, of this. No what I least no, expected. No, 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 no. This is not baggage. This is not baggage. <laughs> Stephen has always been very independent. And There and, you go. And, <laughs> Purely objective. And very resourceful. And extremely resourceful. Oh God. Um, and then, um, and then it. Uh, I left Microsoft, and I am a board partner at Anderson Horowitz, which um, I helped the, the firm on a, on uh, a bunch of different ways. But I also worked on a couple of investments. Uh, two that are still around are Tanium and uh, Everlaw. And so I tend to focus on the the application side of things or the enterprise SaaS side of things, but I've done a bunch of different stuff and I do a bunch of other things on the side. Hey, can you, can you guys clarify something for me? So, so Bob, I'm not sure if you know, but like anytime something goes wrong with PowerPoint at the firm, we make fun of Steven or blame Steven, yeah. but like sure. I actually, I actually saw that you were the one that was responsible for office, at least for a period of time. So are we blaming the wrong person? No, this is when he worked for me. This is the short period of time. So therefore, Bob literally just punted on. However, like everybody who who like can't hook up a projector on Windows or something, that's like the NT kernel, and that is Bob. Like in particular, like GDI shit and that C plus plus weird rewrite of the graphics. Trying to print. God forbid you're trying to print something. Yeah. Yeah, that's all. And networking. Forget because you know there's that whole landman thing. Forget all. That's all, Bob. That's yeah. Bob. Okay. Got it. Well, Great. not really. Not, not really. really. But close really. enough. Let's, let's, yeah. Let's 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 get the history from Bob. So, Bob, if you could, could give us kind of the longest form, you know, what brought you here, that would be great. Yeah. So my, you know, my uh, really early equivalent on computers was when I was uh, I, I got my my uh, my bachelor's degree in computer science from University of Michigan, and when I was doing that in the late seventies in Ann Arbor, there was a little computer company there called Condor that actually built, if you can believe it, a true relational database. It had a joint command um, on a Promemco Z80 with 16K of memory. And I was actually building, I was actually a consultant working for them, building software for our customers uh, and use, you know, doing the actual implementations, which is pretty amazing. It was an amazing early, early experience and in some senses had an impact on where I, where I went. I spent seven years at Rome in the Bay Area, so I moved out from Michigan and, and moved out to the Bay Area after I graduated in 81. And uh, then my wife and I, uh, the two of us, and really it was my wife more than either than me, uh, got us up to, to Redmond and, and up to Microsoft, and we both wound up joining Microsoft. Um, I spent 23 years there until 2011. Uh, really doing all over the place and, and, and really had an opportunity to, to have my hand in or run just about every every different business at Microsoft with the exception of games. Uh, and most of my time, I spent I had that brief brief couple of years when Stephen and I worked directly together um, in the applications area, but almost all of my time was spent in infrastructure, uh, database, Windows Server, System Center and the management stuff, uh, the Visual Studio tools, uh, and and helped to build that in the early days of Visual Studio and and uh, and yeah, a lot of different businesses on the server side. Really tried to put together those back office businesses. Um, after I left in 2011, I spent two years at Juniper. That's where Martin and I met. Um, yes. He was uh, he was doing nicer, and and we, I was focusing on software defined networking as well. Uh, and so we met there. 
And uh, and then after that, I spent five years at Snowflake, uh, running Snowflake. Um, took it to just under 200 million or so in revenue. And then since then have been uh, focusing on, on a number of different small companies, helping small companies grow. Every company sort of has the same challenges in terms of understanding. In the, I'm in the infrastructure, focusing on the infrastructure space, focusing on how the business model fits together, et cetera. Uh, I've got a few boards I'm on. I'm on the five-man board, a company, local company up in, in the Seattle area, Dakugami, a former colleague, Microsoft colleague of Stephen and mine, uh, and then another company, a database company called Fauna. So keeping myself busy. Awesome. <clears throat> cool. All right. So for those that are just joining us, um, we are chatting about being a technical product leader at scale as well as early days of Microsoft and what that teaches us with Bob and Stephen. Uh, so we're going to chat for maybe 20 minutes, and then you know we'll kind of open it up to uh, questions. We're also going to bring Beth Ben Fathy up just because he's worked with all of us, and that would be a lot of fun. Um, <clears throat> I do want to do a quick note that the conversation is being recorded, so we like to post these later for everybody to uh, be able to download. And so the disclaimer is. Um, if you are going to come up uh, to chat, ask questions, by doing so, you are consenting to us using your words and image and recording related to this event. So that is the disclaimer. All right, let me let me kick it off with a, kind of a, a bit of a softball. Um, uh, uh, but, but it's actually something that I'm, I'm very curious about, which is, um, you know, you both are famous famously not only technical, but like have deep product sense. And like, this is something that, you know, most people in our industry have, but they kind of, you know, let it atrophy and, or, you know, focus on different things and, or whatever. Um, but, you know, I, listen, I've interacted with both of you a lot in the last uh, uh, few years, right? And I, I would say you're still as technical and product oriented as, you know, any of the founders that we work with or any of the deal partners or, or any other investor, et cetera. And so just the, 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 the opening question is, you know, does this have to do with Microsoft at all? Like was, 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 was Microsoft, um, did it choose technical or product-oriented managers or is it mostly unique to how you want to manage your own career? And either Steve or Bob, you know. Uh, would be Steve, you want to start? Um, why, don't you, why don't you go, Bob? Because sure. I'll, 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 I'll chime I, in. I think, I think Microsoft in general very much encouraged that. And it was difficult to be successful in the, in the uh, product teams without being very technical. And, and, and it's, I, mean, I have a hard time thinking of anybody in, that's been successful in Microsoft products and the product side. I mean, there's sales and marketing and a lot of other, other groups, but in the product side, I, I find it hard to think about people that don't have a strong technical foundation someplace. Now, the applications groups were always much more focused on the customer, the user interaction, those sort of elements of it, whereas the infrastructure side is obviously more bits and bytes and architecture and data structures and things like that. So there's different orientations in different teams, but I think they're all quite technical. And, 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 and to some extent, it, I think it was very much built into my DNA, and it came out of everything that you know, Steve, as Bill more than anyone, really drove that in the early days. Yeah. Would you agree, Steve? Yeah, for sure. So it's a very interesting part of the company's history. And, and I think it's very relevant to startups because Microsoft had this, you know, founder driven, you know, technology focus. I mean, Bill was the founder, Paul Allen was the co-founder, you know, Paul was busy tinkering and building things like, you know, the mouse by himself and, and, and so on. But 
but also it it very early on with effectively a, a third co-founder and Steve Ballmer had this yin and yang of business. I mean, Steve was on a, a different clubhouse where he talked about having worked at Procter and Gamble on you know on on basically brownie mix. You know, after he went to business school. And, and so he was very much from the business side. And so for a very long time, you know, Bill drove a technical agenda and then there was this yin and yang with Steve and the leaders, you, you sort of, and this is, I'm saying this in the, in a polite way, cause I mean it that way, but it's a very interesting dynamic, which was you were sort of a Steve person or a Bill person. And you, you sort of <laughs> came up as like, you were in the technical product side or you were in the the business sales and marketing side. And there were only a couple of very senior people that sort of really spanned both of those with what I would say like equal adeptness. Like it was, it was a very interesting challenge. And, and then the company went through this sort of maturing phase in sort of the post.com bubble where, it was, where, you know, it was like, maybe we should have more general business people running things rather than all these product people because all these product people got us into this this sort of mess where we're, we're going to miss the internet and stuff like that. And so we 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 basically I would say the company wrestled with product leadership versus business leadership for a very long time, but to Bob's point, most of the success ended up coming from people that were were that led the products drawn out of the products as opposed to transplants in. In fact, Microsoft famously had many transplants fail at trying to lead the products. Yeah, it was very difficult to pull. In fact, if you think about it, Stephen, we had program management, right? Not product management. Right. Well, that that in sort of I've always said this, and I have I've been trying for you know eight nine years in the valley, plus all the time I managed the PowerPoint team down in the valley to to really explain this role, but. It's just failed, and I've given up. And now the title changed to Microsoft. Well, even further. Explain it, because I don't even right. Know what it so is. Microsoft had this role called program management back in um, that was really started during the development of Excel, like the original development of Excel in 1983-84, and it it actually rose interestingly enough out of marketing, and so it was like someone in marketing said, "Hey, we need somebody to make our." developers, our coders, our engineers more efficient in their time. So they should rework things less. They should get it right the first time and they should be more in touch with customers. And this was what was called program management at the time, because product management was always just marketing, like demand generation, marketing, advertising, positioning, and things like that. And so we actually had this extra discipline in there that, that then gradually became, and they were all hired from computer science departments. And so it was this very weird kind of hybrid uh, okay. role, but in apps in particular, in what was became office, it became sort of the, the tip of the spear in figuring out what to go do a little bit like what people talk about product management in the Valley and in systems, well, there was all of this work, which Bob should explain about evangelizing to an ecosystem and partners and things that, that you couldn't do if you were busy writing the code. And that grew up a different style of program management. So go ahead, and that's Bob. The style I, that's the style I was basically, uh, more of a, a systems, and we called it systems back then, pro program manager. And it was, you know, it's a pretty technical job, and it, and it does involve a lot of, it takes things from the customer connects with the broader ecosystem and then brings that back into into the development team. It's very similar to what people do with product management more broadly today, but it did not include as much of the business side in it. 
And that was a difference, I think, if you kind of time, I mean, you have to kind of go back. We were, I remember so vividly, you know, when I first built the first SQL server at, at, at Microsoft, it was on, there was a total of 72 floppies, literally floppy disks in the box. And there were over, there was, it was, it had both five and a quarter and three and a half in it. And if I recall correctly, there were 30 something of both of them. Yeah, and, and number, uh, number 25 always fails, right? Like, yeah, and I cut them reading. myself. I actually, I actually made the first version myself, the disk, and, and then sent it to, and, and in fact, what part of my job was to work with manufacturing because they would manufacture manufacture these things. We had a, uh, oh. a, uh, a manufacturing facility in Bothell, just a little bit north called Canyon Park, just a little north of Redmond. And, and, and they would actually build the boxes. They are literally the software boxes. And so that's what's really changed today is that the business side with services, and that's why program management had to change at Microsoft, because when the world became a services world, the business is so interacted, in, in, is so intertwined into the product. Good, it good, can't good. be separated the way we did. Good, good, good. Okay, so now this touches on the next question or topic area I wanted to focus on, which is, uh, and we were chatting about this a little bit before we hopped on, which is today it feels like the enterprise is going through a pretty big transformation and go to market, right? Like, um, you know, it's going from direct sales to either community or DevRel or product-led growth. Marketing is kind of growing importance. Um, post-sales is growing important. There's a big, huge transformation. Um, and, you know, it, it, it feels to me that the, the leaders that navigate these things, I think, tend to, to, to have a better product sense just because, you know, that's the one thing that's invariant to it. And so when I was looking, you know, I mean, actually, I, I guess I'm not much of a student on the history of Microsoft, but I, you know, I was, I've been reading about it the last few days. It's just unbelievable the number of different types of companies it was, right? Like it was an OEM company. Uh, Steve, to your point, it was a retail company. I mean, I bought my first um, Microsoft software when I was a 16-year-old kid, right? I mean, you know, I, I was a kid. So clearly it's like consumer retail, then it's a hardcore enterprise company. It made the transformation to the cloud company. So I've got, I've, I've got two questions. The first question is, is, you know, do you believe that the fact that it's been so product focused has helped it to navigate those? And then the second question is, is I, I, I personally can't think of another company that transformed itself that many times and is still like hyper relevant today. Like, I think the fact that Microsoft acquired GitHub and uses GitHub and LinkedIn, I mean, it's still kind of really kind of hitting. Um, so would love your thoughts on both of these. Like, is this due to the tech product being at the helm? And then, you know, is it unique in that or are there other things we can look at? Ahead, yeah, so I think coming back to Steve's Steven's comment about the yin and yang of Bill and Steve, I think that has a lot to do with establishing the long-term culture of Microsoft, and it was clearly came from those two, and you know the combativeness, you know the negative, all everything, every part of it, you know the good, the bad, as I always said, the good, the bad, and the ugly, uh, and and you know, I had the opportunity to witness it all <laughs> through, the, through the history. Um, the ugly was the DOJ trial, by the way. That was the ugly, um, and uh, and so the, it definitely came from those two, and it, it set a foundation in place that I think allowed for it, for a an exploration of different approaches. I mean. Those two never rested. And, you know, although Steve may not get credit for it, because Satya gets most of the credit for the move to the cloud and the success there, it all started when Steve was, 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 was CEO. 
And it was really that continuous focus of and the restlessness coming back to the you know, to the Andy Grove, you know, only the paranoid survive, which you know yeah. Intel demonstrates yeah. you need to you need to stay paranoid to survive, right? So yeah, yeah, so yeah, I think yeah. they've had some of that, and it was culturally imbued from Stephen Bill. Yeah, it, it's super interesting. In fact, the, the Bill, you know, famously gave a talk about software as a service in like 1998, right? Yeah. And Absolutely. use that yeah. use that phrase even. And then Steve did a giant. Um, keynote, I th what was it, Bob, like 2005 or six, where he sort of did this, we're all in on the cloud, because yeah. by then the cloud had had started. I, you know, it's very interesting. I, I have a little bit of a, it, putting aside the Microsoft survival of it part, I do think that it's important to recognize that I, I think that during technology transitions, there's a tendency to sort of overstate the, the product side of it. Because, it, you know, basically when there's a shift in a platform, you know, whether it's mobile or whether it's cloud or graphical interface, you know, years ago or, or the PC, people tend to think that the product-led companies are, are what win. But the, the thing is, is that, and it makes everybody think, okay, only the best product wins and the best product's always going to be the winner. But then as things start to mature, you know, the other elements of the, the what's called the marketing mix of product, yeah. price, place, and promotion – you know, those start to play an ever-increasing part. I mean, totally. you know, you come to market today with no matter what space you're in, you're not going to win by just saying, hey, it's a SaaS cloud app because all of your competitors are. So there, you, you can't have like that product technology leadership. It's You're going to need the rest of it in order to win. And so to what Bob was saying, this yin and the yang that, that Steve and Bill brought was it, the company was never comfortable winning on one dimension. Like as soon as you escaped your meeting with Bill over like, did you have the right architecture? Did you do this tech product feature right or whatever? You had to show up at your, with your marketing team with Steve and he was going to tell you whether or not the enterprise field was going to sell it. And because of the way the company was structured, if you didn't have good answers, you, it's not like you got to launch anyway. Like you you had to go back to the drawing board. And, and that important, that was sort of a check and a balance in in the company and they also had to handle that like they had to you know bill couldn't veto your go-to-market and steve couldn't veto your product but you had to sort of navigate both of them and i told a story in a post i did last night in my substack called hardcore software a history of the pc era but which by, um, the, which by the way is 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 fantastic for those well thank you, you. but but i did good. tell the story of like the head of of office at the, the first, the year of office in 1993, showing up in Bill's office to try to get him comfortable with the marketing for office, the original office called IntelliSense, which was like the, <laughs> some marketing buzzword. And Bill's eyes were just glazed over and rolling. And the funny part about it was he had already had 87 meetings with Steve and he wasn't going to be in Bill's office saying, hey, at the keynote, Bill, you have to not chuckle when you say the word IntelliSense if Steve was not already happy with it. Oh, and no. And so I mean, to founders, I think there's this really important point about, you know, you have to be ambidextrous in that regard. Well, listen, I mean, maybe, maybe walk, walk me through this, Steve, because um, I get it. <laughs> I get, like, yeah, you have people that are good at business, good at product, but it just feels like a different class to like have that many lives. I mean, like selling to 16 year old Martine, you know, when I was a kid to, doing OEM to like now the cloud era, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I think maybe the, the first one getting to it, like, do you think that Microsoft is unique in this uh, as I do? Because I, I think you were disagreeing with me before, but I'd love to dig into that a bit. 
Uh, well, I'll go first on this one. Yeah, I, no, I don't think Microsoft has many lives. I mean, I don't disagree with that. I mean, I was there, like, you know, Bob, we could tell the story from now until about Microsoft becoming an enterprise company or then just, or right before that, when we pivoted the whole company around the internet, which is actually, I will get to next week in hardcore software. But but the 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 interesting thing about these these pivots are, you know, they're just company leadership. They're, when when Microsoft pivoted to the internet, it was not different than 10 years later when when Mark at, at Facebook pivoted the whole company to mobile. Right. Like it was the same exact- Same sort of thing, yeah. I mean, like, you know, people talk about when, when they would show up to Mark and if they showed a mock-up that didn't have mobile, they were kicked out of the office. Well, it turns out if you showed up to Bill and you didn't have something to do with the internet, you were gonna get kicked out of the office too. Like it was pretty straightforward. And, and and one of the things about those guys, and, and again, I think because those two two worked so closely together for so long, they were able to drive the company there. And you know, and then they had some key lieutenants. You know, I for on on the system side, you know, the person that I always looked up to, and my mentor was Paul Moritz, who you know ultimately was CEO at one point of VMware and has done many things, many great yeah, things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. but these people, you know, these people uh, really had established a culture. Of of as Steve, as Stephen said, where you it's never good enough to just to just 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 have half of it. You have to have have the whole picture. And on the you know on the business side, as 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 rigorous as the technical reviews were, the business reviews with Steve were legendary. And I mean, and almost I mean nightmarish, really. I mean, I I am you know. <laughs> It, no, it, and we had no. to go. Like the product people had to go to these meetings. Like you didn't just hear about them; you had to live through them. No, no, no. Yeah, and they lasted. No, they didn't. And they weren't meetings. They were. They were. They were. You know, off. They were off sites that lasted weeks in some cases. There was this infamous thing called mid-year yeah. reviews. Yeah. Where, where our enterprise field would do this tour. They called it the tour, and they went to usually three sites around the world. There was usually a site in Asia. A site at this horrible, miserable hotel, half a mile from the airport in Paris. At CDG. Oh and, my! This the uh, CDG oh, Hilton. It's the, the worst way. hotel ever. <laughs> and 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 then in Redmond, and and you you would laugh. These things went on for six weeks. And and the wow. typical meeting. To be clear, the typical meeting started at eight a.m. And I swear to God, lasted till two in the morning. Oh, and then yeah, it started like, the next day at eight in the so, morning. And, and let me, this is just, I think that for the sake of like history, but also because I, I really do want founders to understand like the rigor that Steve applied to this. I want to add two things. These meetings were, were, it was like sitting in the green zone in Iraq and you're, you're like the product person and you're sitting there for 14 hours straight. And like, there's the whole German subsidiary is there, the leadership, and then the Netherlands are in the waiting room, and the and the Italians are in the room behind, behind that. that. Exactly, and, exactly. And, the, and then the Scandinavians are all together out in the side smoking, and it's just it's it's an unbelievable thing. And you fill the hotel, and you're there for ten days straight. And yeah, the first day starts at eight, but then you're four hours behind, so the next day starts at seven, and then the next day starts at six, and then why stop? <laughs> and so you sit there, and you're just sitting there, and like if you're Bob or I, like Bob. But, you know, you're, you know, Bob representing, say, the the server world or me doing. Mug, what's, Mug, what is the average Windows service? What is the total Windows service sale in, you know, in, in Scandinavia this quarter? And like, oh, 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 I have no idea what the number is. And, and then you're, you're supposed and, to know it in that and, instance. So. And, and so, right. And like everybody is looking at these 
these like 16 by 20 inch pieces of paper that are giant Excel grids that have every number. It's all the pivot tables for the business of Microsoft, you know, 30, 40, $50 billion, all pivoted for you in a deck of slides. And you're supposed to know it. And if so, the German subsidiary is talking and they, and all of a sudden, Steve, like, you know how like a little rabbit is dancing through the forest and then the, 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 the cheetah sees the rabbit and can zoom and find it out of the whole bush. Well, Steve can find the number on the slide. That's wrong. <laughs> and go. all of a sudden, like, I don't understand what's wrong with the academic skew of office in the Netherlands this quarter. Yeah. And you're like, what? And you were asleep. You were like literally sitting in your drool on the table, like asleep. <laughs> and, and it's like you're in the green zone and then missiles, just mortars just landed at your face. And, and, and usually, and usually and you, you're just goes, like, I have no fucking idea. And then they, then they say, okay, well, we're going to take a break. And that meant, well, someone was going to get fired while that break was going on for not knowing that answer. And I'm actually going to tell the story of when Jeff Rakes wanted to fire me because of the launch date of Office in, in 2001. And, and it's like these were so, – so as funny as I'm trying to make it seem, this was like extremely no. serious and disciplined. And, and it was – And sometimes and sometimes even over the top to be honest. Sometimes. The whole thing was ridiculous. Me, but it was what it was. Give me a second. Can I just one – Let me, let me jump. Yeah. Ben, yes. Yes, you're like – so. Oh, Ben's uh, here. Ben yeah, Foppy, good to hear this year, sir. Apparently, I'm also ben. on this call. <laughs> I've anointed Ben to come. So, Ben, you know, you, you are now uh, voted onto the panel, so you can come join us. Welcome um, to the island. Yeah, Thank you. The, uh, I'm going to have you introduce yourself a, a, a second, and then I'm going to have Anshu come and ask questions. But, okay. uh, but I just want to, before I, I introduce myself, yeah. um, I want to add a comment to what Bob and Stephen were just talking about. Okay, but people have to know where you came from. <laughs> you, know, yeah. some just random, yeah, you have to fess up. Some random dude that fell off the turnip truck. <laughs> <laughs> that none of us ever uh, met. We don't know who you are. Who is yeah, this guy? Right. Yeah. Who is this so guy? I did not know until five, ten minutes ago that I was supposed to talk. So excuse me, I'm not prepared. But um, <laughs> thanks for having me on the panel. I tweeted at Stephen and uh, Martine that I, I was probably the only person in the audience who had actually worked with all three of them That's right. and um, asked a couple of questions that maybe we'll get to at some point. I worked, uh, I've worked in the industry for almost 40 years at many, many companies. I worked at Microsoft with both uh, Stephen and Bob. I worked at VMware with Martine. Before that, I was at MIPS and Silicon Graphics working on supercomputers. Uh, after that, I went to Cloudflare as my last job, ran engineering and cloud operations. And for the last four or five years, I've been probably 80% retired. I've been advising some startups. Uh, and frankly, as I like to say it, I've been spending more time on my bicycle than behind the desk, which is exactly the way I like it. Um, yes. So... I'm sorry I jumped in at the last minute there because I just wanted to okay. add yes. one. Uh, thanks for having me on. I just wanted to add one comment as they were talking about Bill and Steve sitting through those uh, meetings, right, yeah. planning meetings. Yeah, so one, one anecdote from that, I remember we had a freak um, um, snowstorm in Redmond one year, and we were all going through, sitting through this meeting, one of these 8 a.m. to 2 a.m. meetings that Bob was talking about. And at about 6 p.m., somebody comes in and says, guys, there's about, I don't know, a foot of snow outside. 
should we let people go? You know, they need to get home because there's no uh, snow cleaning equipment in Redmond. People are going to have trouble getting home. They said, no, keep going. An hour later, they would come in and say, oh, you know, there's, you know, I don't know, 18 inches of snow. Should we let people go? And to the point that these guys were making, this just went on for hour after hour, hour after hour. And uh, questions that you were just shocked, like the one that Stephen was just talking about, you know, out of the blue, uh, Steve would look at a slide and he would look through 40 pages of slides of quarterly results that uh, had just been put in front of him five minutes ago. And he'd say, oh, this is wrong. December of 2012, we're not going to be making that much money because X, Y, Z in Indonesian currency. And like, well, hopefully, listen, he was right. And he was right. Hopefully this isn't the answer to how to be such an indelible company is you have to have these brutal, um, (laughs) these brutal means. Well, I think there's a, there's a lot the learning here though, is, is, is there's a rigor that's very important. The thing I took out of it, there was also, you know, a approach that was overly harsh at Microsoft. And you know it, it, you know it, it, it got us into trouble in the early days. Um, we got through it, and that you know that there's still a bit of that that I think it's still there. Even Sach has done so much to right. soften it and to yeah. to make it a bit kinder and gentler. But there's still you know it's still there. It's still there. It's in still, it's still, but it's also you know there is a it's a founder you know there is this latitude that founders get, but also you know the fear like they you know they grew up and lived through you know. The post, you know, two years after the IPO, the stock price was still flat. And, you know, there, it's a very, very different thing. And so I don't, I think it's, I do see it much more causal in terms of why there was a success. And I always worry about easing up in that Andy Grove kind of way, because I I think it's easy to get very, very comfortable. And to your point about another company, I mean, the, the pivots were very much because of, of a founder dynamic and, you know, like the fact that I look at, you know, in 2010, we decided to build a computer. So like the company and Bob lived this, like was so against hardware, like Bill in his DNA was like, hardware is a sucker's bet. We're not going to ever build a computer. (laughs) Hey, that sounds familiar. (laughs) Right. And, and the thing was, you know, like we had to, and Bob lived through, you know, like the Cairo project, should we build a computer for it? And then the tablet PC and all of these things. And we never, ever did. And we we finally did. And it really was like only a founder would make that choice, yeah, yeah. you know, and because it, it let, just was so against the grain. Let, let, let me do this. So so my buddy Anshu uh, wants to comment on a comment you made previously related to this, Steve, on – um, how important it is to be kind of product focused. And so uh, I'm going to disavow what I said then. I'm in trouble. <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to let, uh, Anju, Anju, can you hear us? Yes, I can. Magic of technology. Magic. So founder, CEO of Skyflow, good friend. What's your question for Steven? Awesome. So I think, um, I do buy into the fact that the sales and marketing organization has to align behind the new business model. But I think if you think about Snowflake, right, they did literally just build a data warehouse natively in the cloud. And at the time, nobody had done that. I mean, everybody was talking about it. Larry Lisson, my old manager at Oracle, myself at Salesforce, 
we announced a bunch of stuff, but nobody actually did the work. So I think I don't quite buy into the fact that product is the easy part or somehow like everybody gets it. I think product is actually the harder part. What do you think? Oh, he called you out, Bob, on that one. So. Snowflake, it's you, Bob. Okay, so okay, so I believe it's the product is the most important thing. It's always about the product. People yes. buy the product, and 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 the, and people care about the service. I mean, people care about the what they're you know the technology they're getting, and they care about the service they're getting from the company. And I believe very strongly, and we were talking about uh, the rigor, you know, of driving things, to the, which I, you know, I would call a performance-driven culture. But the value side, and particularly the customer centricity of the value side, I think is very important. Um, one of the things that you know we did at Snowflake is 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 the product was so much better. First of all, it made it mm. a lot easier. But we also built a company that people wanted to buy from. And that was important. We built a very customer-centric company, and that and that was not a, that doesn't come from the technology. That comes from culture. Well, that kind of comes from the product. I mean, in some ways, you can't be a SaaS company or a that kind of a company if you're not customer-centric. I mean, if you look at the entire class of companies, whether it's you know everybody in identity talked about the same thing till Todd McKinnon did it right with Okta. Well, you guys look, did it with. Uh, Everybody's customer centric, so you you can't really win an argument by claiming it. Yeah. We from the outside, you have can you claim. Tried, have you tried lately, I, like? But let me installing. No, but everybody isn't company. Everybody isn't customer centric. They all agree. say they are. Portal. Every everybody says they are, and when they win, they're anointed as customer centric, whether they were or weren't. Look, if this were if the best product always wins were true, we'd all be sitting here in front of our Amigas right now. No, I'm saying it's a. I'm saying it's I'm the first sure and most that. important hurdle. And you can, if you don't get the product right, it doesn't matter. Uh, otherwise, Larry Ellison would be killing AWS right now, right? Like if there, sales the, and marketing could win. The, the, I Look, I'm a product person. I always believe the best product is the thing that wins. And I think product is the most important. But I'm also, now I've had enough experience to see that that's a very simple view that sort of tends to rely on, on product transitions. I mean, like Bob, was Oracle always a better product than SQL? Not for every workload, no. not in every way, but Oracle clearly won. Did you know? And and so there's, it's a very, it, it's just very subtle and it's very contextual, and it takes a an arc of time to to really look at. It. I mean, look at right now in the marketplace. Like I don't know how many people would jump up and down and say that Teams is a better product than Zoom. But if you were to read anything about it, you would say, oh, well, it's neck and neck and look at the Gartner Magic Quadrants because it turns out yeah. Teams distribution kind of matters. Do you think well, they yeah. will win yeah. in yeah. the as a result? ELA, stuff, ELA stuffing is a beautiful no. thing, man. I, I, don't, I don't know how to... I don't know. Yeah, I don't buy that Zoom is losing to Teams. <laughs> okay, well, in the real world, it's losing. So... Let me put a little bit of form on this, because actually this is a really interesting point. It so, is. It's super interesting. No, no. Right, right. But I, I just want to refine the discussion quickly, which is um, I would say uh, in an even playing field where you put your product out there on a website and people come and look at it, for sure the best product wins over time. I don't think the consumer is actually stupid. I really don't. The dynamics of 
acquiring technology for the last 20 years have been more of a sales dynamic where there's a lot more that's going on than just the product, right? There's like a value discussion, there's, you know, services behind it. There's an entire, there's account control, there's certifications. I mean, having sold personally against Cisco for, you know, 10 years of my life, I mean, it's not the best product. The product is, is not even central to a lot of what's going on. There's a lot more that's going on. I would argue that things are now changing because bottom up and product-led growth is such a big um, movement. And I, I think that's a lot of actually what Bob did with Snowflake. And so I think you could argue, and I guess this is an open question, that you know it is now the time again <laughs> for product people to be leaders because now it really is about the product as far as go to market. I mean, they're much closer than they were before. And so I don't well, know the product and the business are highly inter intertwined and they have to and, and the business has to be structured correctly in order for the pro even even a great, great product to win. I but think I the, the definition of one. There, there's I think so that, many examples of excellent products that have failed in the market because they didn't have the right channel, the right marketing, the right sales, 100%. the right partnerships. 100%. Well, I, mean, it's, it's almost I think the question is, what do you mean by product? Right. I think when people mean technology. Uh, or like the thing in the box, I agree with you, products can fail. But what I mean by product, I mean the whole product, like the whole definition of the whole product market kind of a thing. Oh, well, that's, so, yeah, yeah but, but that's cheating. But then now you're, now you're combining everything. Now you're combining that's every, everything together. Well, that's the, that's that's the, the thing, right? If in SaaS, you get the... You get and, the and it is. That's what we said from the beginning, is that that's the thing yeah. that changed. In the early days of Microsoft, I built, I built CD-ROMs. Steven and I built CD-ROMs, and we handed it off to a sales team. And yes, we cared about that, but it was two separate things, and the business was highly disconnected from what the customer did with the product. That's just not true anymore. Yeah, the, 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 go ahead, Bob. Sorry, sorry. The other thing you guys keep saying, and I want to, I want to say this, is you keep saying. I mean, Stephen made a statement that Oracle won and SQL Server didn't, and I think they both went one. This is the one thing I'll say: is there are very few zero-sum games. Okay, there are yeah, very few. Absolutely. Very few. Google search is one of them, okay? That's a good example. There's no one. reason that but Teams and Zoom, to the earlier point, there's no reason that both teams... They're Zoom both going to win. Defensive. It's already happened. Yes. It's over. They both won. They both won. Now, does anything else win? That's an interesting question. And what does well, winning mean? What does winning mean, too? Because yeah. you can you can do a lot of things where 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 winning, the net result is... Well, the, where where the net result is just no one really wins ginormously. Because yeah, well, the, I, to me, to me, it's clear you build a multi-billion-dollar business. That to me is winning. Is there's a multi? You know, you, you you've got at least a multi-hundred-million-dollar business that has multi-billion-dollar valuation, but ideally a multi-billion-dollar business. Right. Exactly. That, yeah. That's well, winning. That's this, winning. Let's look at Zoom for the last one year, right? For example, so Microsoft. If if you're watching CNBC for even half an hour, you can't not watch Teams ads. Like you know, four is to one over Zoom. I don't think I've seen a Zoom TV ad. And then there was the whole China thing, which was probably like, I don't know who the PR and marketing people was, but it was a brutal attack on Zoom to the core. But because the product was superior, they responded as an organization, they've actually thrived. I think 15 years ago, Zoom would have been dead by now. Yeah, no, I, I actually, so I, I actually think this is kind of the interesting thing, which is, you know, even five years ago, the world was different. I mean, you know, all of us have lived this, which is if you're in an incumbent and you have, you know, four to 10,000 person sales team and you have account control and you have ELAs of hundreds of millions of dollars to introduce a new product. I mean, you can create a billion dollar product, uh, product line, you know, 
with very little effort because you have everything with you. Now it may be shelfware, it may be a fake business, but like it's definitely a way to kill competitors, right? And so in this case, the product didn't really matter. Like let's say you're a new startup, you're very product focused, you got the best product, but you're going against an incumbent that owns the account and they have the ELA structure in place. You know, it, it, there's very little you can do. But because procurement is changing so much now, I actually think the rules are very different, which is you you know, it, you can't, you know, it's very hard for an incumbent to lock out a startup with account control, right? Just because um, the decisions have been federated to the edge now, right? I mean, it's, you know, it's the, it's, it's almost a cliche, but it's the developer with a credit card. But, you know, it's not just that. I mean, like VPs of engineering are buying, like everybody's kind of a, a, well, a buyer now. SaaS changed everything in that. SaaS makes everything. it so much easier to acquire. acquire well, it's, it's a repeat right? of how the industry got, the PC industry got started true. in the first place. True, I mean, true. Like it Isn't used it to be also a change from capex to opex and changing the center of who's actually doing the buying on a monthly basis. That's a big part of it. Sure. But it also, it, to your point, Martin. I mean, this, the, you know, it, the the history of the industry was, you know, the bankers went to computer stores and bought Excel instead of using the version of one, two, three that the bank had purchased right. for them. And even before right. that, it was the smart people with the credit cards that literally went to computer land and bought a computer in the first place. And so my view of it is, is that these technology paradigm shifts introduce these moments when it becomes almost the purest form of product. Exactly. exactly. And, I mean, the, 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 macro, the macro point here is exactly this, which is like we may be entering a realm where it really is about product leadership and product focus that's going to win the war, which is something that hasn't, I don't think has been the case for the last 20 years, but now more than ever, I really believe it is. And I actually think the Zoom Teams theme is almost a false dichotomy because again, I do feel like that's still kind of this vestiges of an incumbent with us, you know, like having also sold a lot against Microsoft. Like I know all the tricks that they play and I still don't know if you know how much of this is being used. I think what was oh, I'm, I'm king of the, like king of the, you know, the battle over SharePoint, which is my favorite product that nobody used. Right. And it's like Microsoft Link, I think it was a billion dollar business built in two years, which nobody actually used, right? Yeah, I, so, like you're talking to the wrong people to tell you too many stories about that stuff. So Yeah, we built some of these businesses that yeah. failed. Yeah. Those are the no, but like, like SharePoint, I actually have like a whole thing about the history of SharePoint too, which is but th this whole you know, this enterprise bundle, like Okta is just such a shining example of the reality of how product leadership can really change. But they also had a very different value proposition than the incumbent and the incumbent was caught flat footed. But, so to your, to your, go ahead, go ahead. You want to jump in. The thing I would say to your value proposition, I'm just adding to what you want to say here, Stephen, is that the potential to do this in a small company, all of the economics work to the favor of the small company absolutely, versus the large absolutely. company right now for innovation. Right. Exactly. And, and this is, and you know, when you're a company like Microsoft and you have infinite capital, you can overcome it in some senses. But when you're a mid-sized company, you couldn't. This is a learning I had at Juniper. And the founder of Juniper, Pradeep, I listened to him. I heard him talk about this many times. And, and he would lament about how difficult it was to innovate inside Juniper. Because the, all the cool, all the smart, all the best ideas are being developed by people outside the company, and the, yeah. and because capital flows to them so effectively, it was impossible to compete inside a company that was listed listed in the stock exchange and had to do quarterly earnings reports. And, and, and oh, on earlier. top of that, uh, on top of that, the impossibility of of actually introducing a new product that's separate from sort of the existing go-to-market and bundle of a big yeah. company 
it's so impossible. And this was, you know, like Bob, like you remember, like, should we sell Outlook separate from anything? Should it be an office? Should it be an exchange? And we spent probably a year in that debate. And Steve was just like, it's all one thing. It's called office-ish. And, and like, you just sell the well, whole Steve, thing. Steve, everything was either Windows or Office as far as Steve is concerned. But, but this, William, of course, you we... Just earlier yourself, you said, you know, it, SaaS changed everything. You're, you're talking about a platform like Windows that lasted 10 or 20 years. That or doesn't 30. exist anymore. They, or 30. Yeah, yeah. No, that model of delivery of software, an upgrade, and that platform stickiness well, just doesn't exist in the that, SaaS world anymore. That's a big thing about that I think, and what I talk to mm -hmm. the our portfolio a lot is like the, there's only so many plays that you can do with an enterprise bundle and account control. Like eventually yeah, exactly. you just hit the wall where you can't dump you know, like this massive software on a customer and expect them to make sense of it when the department can like say, look, we're done waiting for IT to figure this whole thing out. I don't care what free or not free. It makes no sense to me. This thing solves our problem. Actually, and sometimes it can be to your benefit as a startup. It's if, always to your if, benefit. At, at it's all, always. Yeah. Like if at Salesforce, if somebody had already sold CRM, SAP CRM or Oracle CRM at an account, that means the AE from Oracle and SAP is not showing up in those meetings. So like we would go in and sell department by department over a three-year period because from their perspective, they've already booked the CRM revenue. Yeah. Right? Oh, it, I mean, it, even to this yeah, day, yeah, SAP yeah. is like number yeah, two yeah, yeah. in CRM. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, Salesforce is the perfect example. I mean, like this was a, you know, a $0 billion industry of selling big, heavy, you know, Oracle-based CRM until like, you know, the regional sales guy can just go and buy salesforce.com and sign up his team or her team and, and roll with it. And it, so it's a huge shift, but eventually everything is going to shift that way. And then IT is going to have to sort of execute on all of its slides about digital transformation and is going to have to build a platform for the company. <laughs> but that's the, that's the challenge. This is very hard to, to stitch this stuff together now, right? So... It's it's got to happen. It, this is exactly what happened with Office. It's sort of the, it's just a classic bundle unbundle cycle, and the the well, platform shift introduces that. I mean, you guys remember even in the infrastructure business, ten years, twenty years ago, we were talking about having a right firmware version on an EMC storage box not working properly with the right version of the patch running on our Juniper uh, router. It, we had the combinatorics of testing every version of software with every yeah. version of hardware yep. that was out there at each of these bespoke sites. That's what killed a lot of that generation of software and hardware delivery. And none of that exists anymore. Right? Yeah. Well, this is well, also as long part as of your SaaS, as long as you focus. I, right, still, I still talk to a lot of customers, a lot of companies that are doing things on that are tar that oh we have we sell an instance on premise etc and that is difficult because for those organizations the companies that are building that they don't have the SaaS development life cycle Listen, and that's Bob, Bob, Bob I've got a, I've got an anecdote for you which is you know I you know I I spend a lot of time speaking with entrepreneurs you know let's say 300 conversations a year roughly and over the last five years, I've actually witnessed the definition of on-prem change. So on-prem used to be what you and I think of as on-prem, which is like, you know, like the sheet metal and the chips inside it are sitting on the customer's premise, like the real estate they own. 
more and more on-prem means in their VPC. <laughs> yeah, I think on-prem means AMI, right? To me, on-prem means I give people. When people say to me they they they're delivering an AMI, I go, "Yeah." <laughs> That's my no, basic but, response. But but actually, to Ben's point, it's very interesting. Which is, I mean, shipping software. I, I listen. If I looked at like you know what we had, let's say when I was. Uh, um, rolling out we were about a 600 million dollar a year business and if i looked at the amount of r&d let's say it's 300 million dollars in 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 r&d roughly if i looked how much of that was just maintenance of dealing with all of the like hcl and the different like whatever i mean it was a very very significant part of of the um of the engineering expense and so i think even just the fact that now like, you know, yes, it is the VPC. Yes, it means something from an administration and configuration standpoint, but you actually don't have to deal with that level of complexity is a massive change. And again, I think it benefits the startups. So you can very viably build something quickly and, and get it in market. Well, and that's, that's a, why this... Go ahead. Go ahead, go ahead. There's another... I think the question is, to me, SaaS is very... The definition of SaaS is when I upgrade software, am I allowed to break APIs or not on a version by version basis. If I'm not really allowed to break APIs, that means from a customer's perspective, they have one continuously same-ish version of the software that they don't need to worry about. Well, that's a, it's an AMI or a VPC or a machine or frankly, even an iPhone app. Like Clubhouse is yeah. SaaS. I never have to worry about like well, a version number. Maybe what I mean is is delivering a service then instead From, of yeah, just yeah, saying yeah, SaaS. Well, that, exactly. there's this and, very... Right. That's there's right, a right. there's a very deep issue about about how the next platform shifts will take place because everybody has been iterating on sort of their their core product and nobody has really done this monster rearchitecture reapplication of everything that uh -huh. you would normally do by saying like you know the way Oracle would go from R10 to R11 or whatever and say look migrate over the next three years but otherwise don't migrate but you're going to have to pay a lot and if it, SaaS hasn't lived through that yet. And so there's two dynamics, that one. And then the other one is just each new but, but platform never iteration. never will, Stephen. I'm sorry, Stephen. It never should. I mean, well, that should it, never happen. It, it, I agree with you. And that's what I think is going to be very interesting because that just means there's more opportunity because when it comes time for, the, for an actual platform shift to happen, whatever that might be that nobody's envisioned yet, it will mean the same problems will get addressed with a different level of abstraction and a different kind of complexity in a whole new way, the way that Salesforce, you know, attacked the same well, problem of CRM, but in a different way. I'm, and I'm, it will I'm, leave the existing companies in the dust. It, it just has to happen that way. Of course, I, I just like we're starting that, to see Salesforce, uh, we're starting to see a new generation of sales, you know, customer relationship management tools that is displacing Salesforce in some companies, it, it, at least for some elements of it. We'll start to see that. But the thing about SaaS that or service that's so important is the continuous delivery of an experience to your customer. As I say, I woke up every day and I had to earn my customer's business at running a service. And and that you know, the, the, one of the points, of course, is that the APIs don't change. Of course, that's true. But everything else has to be true in terms of the ex quality of that experience. It has to be up. It has you know, a database can't corrupt data or anything like that. Um, uh, all of these things are, 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 are incredibly important. I think it actually leads to a very different, I think it can lead to a longer term ownership of, of, of customer experience if in fact you can continue to evolve and provide a great competitive experience. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. The, the challenge is the same one that people say today. People look at Windows 
And they say the problem is that it kept bringing forward all of this cruft and all of this legacy. And that's what made it really complex and really hard to deal with. And it also made it hard for Windows to evolve. And so the interesting thing, which we haven't seen yet, is what happens when a given SaaS application reaches this point where, like, wow, we'd really like to do that, but it's just going to be too difficult. And that's going to happen because it's software. And I, and so I, I'm fascinated. I, I, don't, I think it's happening today. I actually think that's happening with Salesforce CRM today. In some I, I, it might very well be. I, I, I totally agree. Yeah, and well, let, uh, well I think that wait, it's wait, not wait, happening wait, head on, but it's happening in different ways, right? You have to find a. It like, never happens head on. It never happens. Yeah, it's head a, it's a whole. It's a different. It's a it's a shift. It's always a shift. Yeah, to me, like Okta and Twilio are more likely the next CRM company, or frankly, Skyflow is trying to be that from a API data perspective. But I think it's going to be someone who says a CRM for an entirely different class of customers let's say B2C customers or sure. engineering construction customers or whatever it is, that's what's good. But, you know, I think Salesforce sorry, has that, evolved too. That, that's exactly the point Stephen was making earlier. And I think all of us are saying many of us, including Bob, Stephen, and myself, spent dozens of years trying to deliver a solution, let's say Exchange or SQL uh, or Outlook or Office or Windows that worked on a single PC, or at best, it worked in a cluster of half a dozen servers, and more recently, maybe in a data center, but still delivering services to a few hundred or a few thousand employees of an organization. That model flipped, and the first time I saw it beautifully was Gmail, where it didn't compete with Exchange anymore. It didn't try to address the needs of a 10,000 or 100,000 person company email it solved it for half a billion people and guess what once you've done that the other problem is easy you can deliver the same set of service and solve it for a hundred thousand people when you solved it for 50 million people or a hundred million people All so right. i do want to i do want to i do want to make a, i do want to make a point on this this is great i just you know especially on the leadership thing it's another observation which is um I, I do believe kind of the schizophrenic need in the business. And I do believe in the past 20 years, a lot of it has been like go to market and, and product. And, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the great leaders is interesting actually come through product marketing. I mean, think of like Dave McJanet at Hashi or Templeton um, at Citrix or, you know, Chambers famously like sales or Joe Tucci, et cetera. Right. I mean, it was like go to market. You know, I, I'm, I'm actually starting to see that, the complement skill set now on SaaS services is people that are really good at operations, which is actually quite a bit different. And so it's almost like product is becoming marketing, right? It's it's like, you know, how do you think about like community or DevRel or product-led growth? And then the complement is something that really knows how to have like SLAs and like really do kind of operations on the back end. And so I do think that we're seeing a, a leadership shift on that one. I would, let me build on that. I would like to build on that, but just because the labels can really, I think can sort of confuse or cause people to have sort of a confirmation bias and the labels, meaning whether it's a marketing person or a product person or an engineering person, what's really happening is that abstraction layer that the makers of the product have to deal with keeps moving up. And so now, you know, like Bob was joking, but it was real. Like the makers of SQL and Office also had to be like people who understood how to manufacture floppy disks and parts and bills of material and all this stuff. And then that went away. 
And you abstract yeah. that away so we could focus more on the user experience or the value proposition or in Bob's case on administration and cost of ownership. And as the abstraction layers increase, the you you end up having to get the, you end up getting to focus on different things. And what cloud has done, it's allowed the engineering team to put its focus in different places. Like things like scale take on a whole different meaning. Like what used to just be like the very fact that you could scale meant you could differentiate your product. Like, and right. if you put a zillion engineers on just scale, then you could right. win because nobody else could do that. Now everybody right, right. can scale. Yeah, I'm making a slightly different point. I totally agree. I'm making a slightly different point, which is in the past, the way that you got products into customers' hands in B2B was through direct sales, right? And and so the reason that I, I believe that you had so many strong product marketing leaders, like, for example, Templeton, um, was that so much of it is just understanding go-to-market and sales enablement, which is strictly a product management thing. Or you had strictly sales leaders, right, which is like two-tier chambers or whatever. Sure, sure, sure. Be because that was the primary route. What is interesting about SaaS is, is uh, now, especially with product-led growth, where there's focus on the product or the community, like it's very hard to understand, you know, an open source community or, or a DevRel community without just being strongly technical in the product. And so you have product leaders are taking the go-to-market function and almost everything else looks like op like classic operations and post sales, right? It's like, you don't have to evangelically sell anything. You don't have to enable a sales force. <laughs> Not for these complicated infrastructure. We could never do that. I mean, look, we did a very field-focused enterprise sales with yeah, Snowflake, yeah. and, and while I think we should have done yeah, but more you were going against data in warehouse, Bob. I, I, I get it, but like you know, you know. Look, no, you can sell. Okay, but that's. A, I'm sorry, I'm a plumber. I work on these sorts of things. Right. You could the, sell. This, look, Martine, you could do like applicant tracking that way. Or you could do, you know, marketing yeah. community sites that way, but you're you're not gonna you're not gonna no, sell I'm, authentication and identity and security. No. Those things aren't gonna be like here's my credit card. Okay, well, so what's interesting is it's moving to more of a post sales motion. So, like a lot of the selling that all of us have done have been, "Hello, customer, we don't know you. We're gonna do a." We're gonna do a solution based. We're gonna do a solution based. It's, it's pre-post sales though, because you still have the POCs. You got you got to get through these POCs, for sure, uh, Martine. For sure. but, and that but, and that's definitely pre. That's definitely pre-sales. Well, if you look at a lot of a lot of the bottom-up companies, whether it's, say it's GitHub or it's Slack, I mean, the actual profiles of the unit economics okay. looks very different because they You're right. a brand monopoly easier. The cat goes down. It's more of an expansion discussion, and so like and, the and nature I, of the sales rep changes and. And the nature of the leaders change. I mean, they actually are a very, in, in my experience, they're a very different focus, which is much more on the operation side and much less on, on the, the sale and the initial go-to-market. I think so, but I really want to push back on you a bit on this because at least for the technical infrastructure things, that selling function remains important. People, I, I've, had founders, I've had founders say, well, we're now going to do a bottoms-up sales motion so I don't need any salespeople, and no, that's just no, no, no. not I'm true. Not, that is just not true. I'm the biggest advocate of direct sales. That's where I cut my teeth. You always need to have a sales team. It's just a different motion to walk into a customer that doesn't know who you are versus to walk into one that does. And so I, do I totally, no, I totally agree. You want to use the bottom up. You want to use the bottoms up motion to establish your lead generation. This but is even but in you're the talking top, about lead generation even, now. No, 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 but no, even but in the top down, even in the wait, top down sales these days, I'm finding that if I'm talking to a CTO of a, I don't know, 10,000 person company, CIO, he goes, oh, this makes sense after seven minutes of listening to the pitch, has no patience for the slides, and says, can you send me the docs? And he's not really reading the docs, but he wants to see if Skyflow is for real or not, right? Like he just, yeah. I'm finding that people right. have zero patience for like, let me tell you the value proposition of PII and 
like you know cloud-based data warehouses the product sells itself the product should do a lot more of its actual selling and absolutely the experience of the product should be present before before you know as a part of that but it is the the selling process is important still i get it but i'm still i'm even making it more of a macro point or maybe i'll push back on your pushback which is the nature of the sellers and the structure of the organization is changing for example Net revenue retention is more important now than in the past. Customer success has like a massive negative unemployment rate relative to what it did. Like you were seeing a shift in like basically pre-sales, SEs, like the whole thing now to more of a post-sales motion. Like the customer knows who you are. You're already brand established and it's a different, it's more of kind of a cultivate. And so it's still direct sellers. They're still in there. And I, I think, I think even Snowflake, it was probably leading this, but not what the current trend is on that. No, I don't think we were a leader. I think we were behind the motion, the, the, behind the eight ball bit on on this. However, I you know I do one of the things I learned from Stephen years ago when I applied this learning at Snowflake was when you think about how to build your headcount in your team, you know you think about essentially your engineers as your as your workforces, your denominator, you know, the denominator for your total number of people. And then you sort of compare everything to that in engineering. How many engineers do I have? Okay, how many product managers do I need? How many people in, in infrastructure, et cetera? And I found the same exact thing that there are these workforces exist in the selling in sales organization. And you could think of everything around that as you're, you, know, you still have direct sellers that are actually bringing in your revenue sure. and you're doing your renewals and everything else. I know we're, I know we're out of time, <laughs> but like one more thing, like if you even track the number of like the relationship, the, the, the ratio of SEs to AMs, it's changed dramatically. Yeah, so, I believe that. I agree it, with it, you. And it's, and, it and the SEs are growing. The SEs are you, growing. No, no, no. The SEs are shrinking. It used to be one to one. It's now like oh. one to three. Like one, um, like the like SEs are growing, but the post sales people are, are increasing. Then, then the post sale post sales yeah. service is increasing. Exactly. I post-sales think we need a part two, guys. Like this. No, but I, I think it, the reason I say that is because I, I think that that there's a very interesting. Now it's a, becomes a forward looking thing, and it's yes. very interesting to sort of try to play this out and game it. And where does the the real change happen in day-to-day management because I don't think it changes the need for product leadership. It changes leader has to interact with all of these resources. That's the important part. Like we, there was, I think what we'll see in hindsight is that the aberration that we see was really just part of this continuum where the non-product people sort of take over a matured market and operate it until there's a technology disruption that causes the product leadership to come back. And I I think we're, we're in That's that good. spot right now. <laughs> and right, when I'm that happens, the next generation of solutions solves the problem at a higher level of abstraction in the stack. Just Perfect. like we have in the lab. That, that's a key point, I think, that Stephen was making earlier. I agree. I agree. All right, listen. We don't, we, we, I, we, my goal was just get us agree on something so we could end. Uh, yeah, that was my goal. We need to do this on the blockchain. And move it to a cloud. No, blockchain. We need consensus on the blockchain. And with that, ever, listen, everybody in the audience, thank you so much for joining. Ben and Andrew, I appreciate you coming up and kibitzing this. Steve and Bob, really a pleasure. I actually do think that we should do a part two talking about going forward and how that's shifting because it's something a lot of the founders I work with is dealing with. I'm certainly trying to wrap my head around it. So thank you to everybody. I'm going to go ahead and end this now. So really appreciate it. Cheers. Thanks all. <laughs>